and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Brian Pistoria. Now, Brian is a founding member and former drummer of the band Adrenaline. Now, unfortunately, Adrenaline never made it as big as they really should have been. They were big in their native Detroit. Their most recognizable song is The Road of the Gypsy from Iron Eagle. Brian talks about the inspiration for that song and how it got on the soundtrack and movie. And like I said, they never made it as big as they should have been. They were plagued by issues with their lead singers, with record companies. They got embezzlement stories and the whole payola scheme. Brian kind of gives the history lesson of the band. And if you're not familiar with them, this is a great interview that Brian gave me. Check out their music following the interview. It's great. You can find it on Spotify, on iTunes. And Brian tells us which former Vanilla Ice wannabe was a big fan of the band. And I hope you enjoy my interview with Brian. And helping me relive my youth today is Brian Pastoria. Brian, how are you tonight? I'm doing, doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for doing this. It's a real treat. Um, before we, we look back, I just wanted to um, talk about on, on my show recently, we did a top uh, 10 80s soundtrack songs of all time. And it, we uh-huh. had with uh, hosts from another podcast, John from The Hustle, who does a music podcast. It's really, really great. Uh, so we picked our top 10. We had so many other songs, we decided to break it into two parts. The second part was kind of like the underrated, underappreciated songs of the 80s. And one of my songs on the list was Adrenaline's Road of the Gypsy from Iron Eagle, which was like the unofficial theme song from that movie. And a fabulous song. And I just wanted to let you know about that. Oh, thank you, Noel. Appreciate that very much. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But let's uh, let's go way, way, way back and... Uh, First of all, how did you decide on playing the drums? Well, you know, uh, the drum, the drums, I think, are just in my DNA somehow. Um, it, you know, when I was a kid, my father was in, in, in a band called the Blue Notes here locally, and they played weddings. And, um, you know, when I was uh, a kid, they used to rehearse in our basement. Okay. Um, and so I, I would just sit there and watch the band and always watch the drummer, Joe Abbott at the time, and Sam Tundo uh, as well, who, and, you know, he's with the Detroit Symphony now. But, uh, you know, it, it was just, I just loved watching them. And then in 1963, I was six years old, and, you know, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And when I saw Ringo, right. it really just... It just changed everything for me, you know. I mean, the the whole thing that, that at that time and the way he played and the band and the whole Beatles thing. But I really gravitated to uh, you know everybody was into you know Paul McCartney and John Lennon, right? And so was I. But you know Ringo really caught me, and I just loved the whole dance beat thing that uh, that uh, he had going on. You know, and, you know, when, seeing all that really, I really wanted to play the drums, but my mom and dad really stressed to me that piano would be the best way to start, uh, learn to play the piano before you learn any other instrument. And so, you know, I, I ended up taking the piano lessons and doing that. And my brother did the same. My brother, Mark, who was two years younger. And... I was going to St. Veronica's at the time, a Catholic school, and 
uh, I was, you know, friends with the Romeo brothers back right. then, and they were into music, and they played, Michael played, uh, you know, a saxophone, and uh, Jimmy played a clarinet, and, you know, my brother Mark was playing keyboards, I was playing keyboards, but I, I only played the keyboards because I, I was told to do it, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I really wanted to get more into the drums, and I, you know, every year I was saying I wanted to do, you know, play the drums, and you know, years went by, and uh, three, four years, and when I was 12 years old, I was getting ready to go into eighth grade, and I told my mom, you know, I said, you know, I think I want to quit school after eighth grade, get a job, and buy myself a drum set. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she kind of just smiled at me while she was making some meatballs. And, right. <laughs> you know, it was like, okay, Brian, whatever, that's okay, you know, we'll talk about that, and so at Christmas time in my eighth grade, I got my first drum set, a, Slinger, a blue Slingerland uh, kit, and uh, very simple, you know, snare drum, kick drum, rack tom, floor tom, and, you know, the ride cymbal and a crash, and I was just completely out of my mind. Uh, for years, I would, you know, just go to my neighbor, Frankie LaRosa, he played in the drums in the basement, and he would play to the Beatles and the Stones and the Monkees and you know, Cream and all these different bands back then. And before I got my drums, I would just go to Frankie next door and go to his house and watch him play the drums in the basement. I just really wanted to play, wanted to play, wanted to play. And when I finally got those drums and I just couldn't believe it. So we had a nice stereo, a Zenith stereo system with a big speaker. And I put the drums in front of the stereo system and I just started playing to my favorite songs. And that was like, you know heaven man 13 years old after four years playing piano i finally got my drums and uh my parents again said you know you should take drum lessons and uh, we're going to get sam tundo to give you drum lessons so i went did my drum lessons uh two or three times and it was just a snare drum and rudiments and you know getting into all the basics and i really wasn't into it um I, I went back and I told my parents, I said, this is not what I want to do, play like this. And they said, well, you, I thought you said you wanted to play drums. And I said, yeah, but I, I don't want to take these kind of lessons. And so I they said, well, you're going to have to talk to Sam. So I told Sam Tundo, I said, Sam, I, I don't want to do this. I want to play the Rolling Stones. I want to play Beatles, uh, the Monkees, and, you know, <laughs> just mm-hmm. do my thing. And right. he said, well, Brian, you need to learn all this stuff first. And I said, well, I'm going to just have to pass. I want to do this. Thank you very much, Mr. Tundo. I appreciate it. And uh, that started everything for me, where I just started studying all of my favorite records that I loved. I would just study the drums and learn how to play from there. Right. And, like, obviously, back then, listening to the records, it wasn't watching videos on YouTube on on, on certain people playing. So it had to be, you know, much more difficult to learn it by yourself. Yeah, and, you know, the, you know, it was cool because, like, that was big about the Ed Sullivan show, you know, in Shindig, and, you know, there's a couple shows that, you know, the bands would get exposure on, but, you know, it was all about listening to the songs. Right. You know, that's what it was really all about, and I think that was really beneficial for me because I loved to just try to play what I heard that worked on those records, and I would listen to the hi-hat, I would listen to the snare drum and you could hear things, you know, that, you know, 
I would read I would read Cream magazine a lot. You know, that was one of my favorites, and that you know also would listen to you know, what they said, the drummers and their influences. You know, and that's what I learned about Sam Cooke and Otis Redding right. and Wilson Pickett and all the great R and B singers. You know, is because Rod Stewart, the Beatles, they loved Motown and yeah. you know that whole thing and. You know, the Stones, they loved R&B music, and they talked about, you know, Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett, and, you know, so when I would read that in the magazines, then I would go buy those records, hmm. you know, and learn how to play those songs, because Charlie Watts said he loved how to, you know, how those songs felt, and, you know, uh, you know, Ringo Starr would talk about Benny Benjamin, you know, from Motown, and, you know, and that's how I learned about it, you know by, you know, and sometimes on the radio they would talk about it, but it was mostly by just reading magazines and and uh, doing research. You know, there was no internet, so you really had to go out and buy a magazine and right. read it, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's amazing how many rock and roll stars always quote that they love R&B, and that's like some of the biggest influences on their music. Well, it's it's really if you want to be a real rock and roll artist you have to have that in your blood because that's what rock and roll is I mean the only reason why it's called rock and roll is because they didn't know what the heck to call it because it was a it was a merging of musics you know it was taking the blues and mixing it with rhythm and blues and mixing it with country put a little gospel in there you know, wow, what what is that when you put all those things together, you know? It's it's rock and roll, you know. It's, uh, you know, actually it started out as a sexual term. Right. You know, it's like, you know, and uh, they said, what are we going to call this music? And, you know, it was a lot of the, the artists in England, um, you know, when they, they turned all of us on to the blues and all those kind of things, you know, because... Back in the day, you know, it was kind of a, you know, it was, it was so wrong that radio didn't play black music. Right. You know, and in the 50s, that was a big issue. And so, you know, the, and a lot of the people in the white community were loving that music. And I think, you know, a lot of those bands from England, like the Beatles and the Stones and the Animals and all these groups, you know, they just loved the blues and the R&B music they were hearing from the artists in, in America that, you know, didn't necessarily get popular on the radio, but when everybody was going to the, the bars and the restaurants, they were just filling those jukebox up with the coins to listen to those songs, you know, and everybody, I mean, Sam Cooke, you know, geez, Rod Stewart, that was his favorite singer. Right. You know, he... I, I I couldn't believe it when I first heard Otis Redding, you know, and, you know, Sam and Jackie Wilson was just, you know, off the charts, you know, and seeing them perform is even, you know, with Jackie Wilson. I mean, that, if there was no Jackie Wilson, you wouldn't have Michael Jackson or Prince, you know, it's like he laid all the groundwork for that, you know, so... And those drummers, Al Jackson Jr., Benny Benjamin, you know, Bernard Purdy, you know, these people, you know, when I found out who they were, I studied them like they were a religion, hmm. you know. And uh, it just, 
You know, it's I guess it was in my blood, man. Somewhere in Italy there. Uh, right. <laughs> I think uh, from our Khaleesi family, there was a, a lot of music, I'll tell you. It's incredible. Yeah, that's great. Did you um, ever perform in your dad's band? Uh, yeah, I did for almost a year. Right. But it, playing drums, though, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I played... Uh, that's where I really learned about dance, playing to get people to dance. Right. It was critical when I played in my dad's band, the Blue Notes. They, that was the thing that they stressed to me when I first got in the band. They said, listen, you know, I know you like all that rock and roll, but, <laughs> you know, what's, we got to do with these weddings is keep people on the dance floor. So, you know, I really learned how to play all those, you know, old school songs with the dance beats. And, you know, I did see the people on the dance floor and I thought, you know, okay, this is what it's all about. And I took that same mentality into the rock band, you know, being playing with that style, with the swing, you know, uh, that was kind of different. You know, Charlie and Charlie and Ringo were two of the greatest of all time when it came to playing swing drums and getting people on the dance floor. Yeah, absolutely. So was that considered like your first paying gig? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. yeah. I did that. I did it for almost a year and out of high school and I worked a day job too. Um, I was going to get in the restaurant business with my uncle. Um, he owned Gino's Surf and uh, Gino's Pizzeria, Barry's Party Store. And I thought that's what I was going to do because I didn't go to college. Right. And uh, when I was playing in my dad's band, I had my drums in the back of my car. Uh, and uh, I ran into Mike Haggerty. Um, we called him Flash in high school. And, and um, you know, he said, he said, hey, man, you're playing drums. I said, yeah. He said, I'm, I got a band and I'm writing songs. And, you know, we need a drummer. And, you know, I said, wow, you're writing songs, Flash? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, wow, I'd like to hear it, man. Like to check it out. He said, "Why don't you come to rehearsal?" So I did. Went there the next day and set up my drums and listened to the songs. I really liked them and started jamming with them. And it's like really kind of like hit home, and that's when it all started. Right. So, how did the other members of the band come about? Were they already uh, with Flash? No, actually. Um, there was a different singer, bass player, um, another guitar player, um, and it was uh, Matt Barron and Kevin Durlon was a singer, and uh, Glenn Young played bass. And you know, when we first got it going, we did a couple of shows, and it was like we really needed uh, the right lead singer. And right. then uh, a friend of mine's mother uh, had Dave Larson working for him, driving a truck. And he was always singing hmm. at the uh, at work, and she right. loved his voice. And she heard from my good friend Mike Smith. We call him Smitty. He was in music too. And Smitty said, "Hey, Brian's in a band, and you know, I think they need a singer." And she said, uh, "Hey, I got this guy at work, and you know, she'd give him, I tell him, give Brian a call." And so David called me and came over, and he said, "I got my microphone. I'm ready to rock." And came over to the house, and when we jammed and he started playing Stealing by Uriah Heep and when I heard him mm-hmm. sing Take Me Across the Water man I just could not believe what I was hearing 
couldn't believe what I was seeing. He was a good-looking guy, and uh, it was really incredible. So David joined the band. We did some shows, and it was very exciting. And, you know, it was kind of, I think we really knew that we needed a, a serious guitar player. And Michael Romeo and I went to grade school together at St. Veronica's. So I told Flash, let's go listen to him. And Michael blew everybody away. He was still in high school, but he joined the band. And we started touring, uh, you know, playing around town with Michael in the band. And, you know, that was great. And then uh, shortly thereafter, uh, you know, we sat the bass would take us to another level, having a, a bass player like Bruce Schaefer, who we went to grade school with as well, with, with the Romeo Brothers. And so we had Bruce come over and jam. And then Bruce ended up in the band in 1978. So, we, you know, it all started in 77. 78, we had Michael and Bruce and myself, Flash, and David Larson. And uh, uh, we were in the studio recording some songs and doing some stuff. And, you know, that's when uh, we we got in the studio with Jerry Allaire, uh, United Sound. And, and uh, we really wanted something different in our band. There was a lot of two guitar, drum, bass, guitar, uh, vocal bands, you know, the Stones and Aerosmith. And there was just a lot of bands with that makeup. And, you know, we really liked the Seegers, right. Springsteen stuff. And, you know, Jimmy Romeo, Michael's brother, was a dear friend of mine and, you know, one of my best friends in grade school too. And he's just one of the best horn players around. He was an all-star base player, uh, baseball player. You know, he pitched at Tiger Stadium with Notre Dame High School right. when he was scouted by all the big colleges. And he could have gone on to be a professional ball player if he got the right breaks. And their father, Jack Romeo, was a, a professional baseball pitcher for the Senators, too. Okay. So that was in their blood. And so when we had Jimmy come on stage one day at the Gross Point Yacht Club and play and the reaction from the crowd when he went into his sax solos, it was just like, oh man, this is the differentiator right here, man. Saxophone with this band, off the charts. So, uh, you know, Aerosmith, when Mama Kin, their saxophone on there, and that song, and a lot of people don't realize, you know, and right. that's when I thought, you know, it could be cool to have sax with a, a hard rocking band, you know. So, it all came together, and... Uh, that was the beginning of everything with Gimme Gimme Good Lovin'.
recorded that song. It was a cover by Crazy Elephant. Right. And, uh, big crowd favorite. And when we cut that with Jimmy Ann Sachs, man, the radio station went crazy. W4, Doug Podell just went crazy over that song and started playing it like a, like a, all, every day. Do you remember where you were when you first heard that on the radio? Yeah, actually, after we cut it, you know, um, uh, Jerry Allaire was friends with Doug Podell and he, you know, he had told us, he said, listen, I played Doug the song last night at a party and he loved it. He said he's going to put it on the radio. I was like, we were like, wow, really? You know, the next day I was driving in my car down Mack Avenue near 8 Mile and as I was driving, all of a sudden I had W4 on and I heard that drum intro come in on my car radio and I had to pull over because I could not believe what I was hearing. And I cranked up my radio and listened to the whole song right there on 8 Mile and Mac, and I just couldn't believe that we were on the radio. You know, it was like, and it sounded so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's great. Yeah, so then, would you guys first record your first album after that? Um, well, that was a, 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 an EP, and right. that led to a, 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 a tour down in Texas and Florida and Carolina and you know, we were playing down there, and then we did some touring um, with 38 Special and some other groups. And so uh, that led to uh, us playing down in Texas. And uh, Cedric Hardman came to see us in a club, uh, played for the 49ers, and uh, he was really great. And um, and he saw us playing, performing a club, and he loved us, and he said he worked for a label in LA, Rockshire Records they were called, and he was a consultant for them, and he called them, and they flew out. Within two days, they were at a show, and they saw us, and they said they wanted to sign us. So, Cedric Cardman is the one who helped put that deal together, and that's when uh, it all started with the first album, and that's when we met Vinny Poncia, and they asked us who we wanted to produce us, and you know, Vinny was a big choice because we liked a lot of the records that he had done, and he was a songwriter and a producer. So uh, we signed a deal with Rockshire, met Vinny, started putting things together, and ended up at the Boogie Hotel in Long Island, New York, for six weeks recording right. our first album, American Art. Right. And working with Vinny Pontia, that must have been special for you since he worked and wrote songs with Ringo Starr. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. That was huge. That's one of the big things that, you know, we really liked. Um, he did that and Peter Chris. Yeah, from Kiss. And, yeah. Uh, you know, when he did Peter Chris, I mean, I knew Peter wasn't that great at right. that stuff. And when I, when I heard that record, I was like, oh, my God, who produced this? This is really good. And uh, found out it was Vinny. So we told the record label, that's who we want to work with. Get a hold of them. Let's go. Yeah, and it, it certainly worked out. Uh, American Heart was, you know, a fantastic album. Uh, but d going back to David, who, who was a few years older than the rest of the band, right? Yeah, yep. He was uh, about three years older. Right. Um, like, did you know, like, back then, like, the issues that he was having? Yeah, we kind of did. He told us, and... Um... He was told us he was adopted and he had a lot of issues that he was had gone through in his life with that and um, you know he had some you know issues with speed and um, you 
know, Jazoxin, you know, doing a lot of uppers and that kind of thing. And kind of took its toll after a minute, you know, a few years of that. Right. And it got worse as we got more popular and, you know, situations with the girls and he had two different kids with two different women and when the band started happening and you know they were starting to come after him for money and right. you know live up to this do this do this and he felt a lot of pressure he didn't know who his parents were you know he felt insecure about his family thing and you know being a dad and having the issues and all that stuff you know but at the core of it all he was really a great guy and a beautiful guy that we just loved and um you know, it's just unfortunate what happened. Yeah, totally. Now, was there ever, like, you guys have intervention with him or, you know, try to get him help? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of, there was a lot of that, you know. And, um, you know, we didn't realize when it happened that it was as bad as it was. You right. Know, we thought he could get through it, and he said he would. And, you know, all of a sudden, when it was big record guys came out to work with us and do this whole thing. He just didn't show up at a gig and they found him the next day in a car over across the street from W4 and uh, he had written a letter and you know he said he couldn't live up to what was about to happen and you know he didn't want to let anybody down and he uh, said next time I'll be rocking my way back to earth soon and hopefully you know I'll get it right the next time, you know. Right, well. Love you, love you guys, stay the best, fuck the rest. Right. <laughs> yeah. Was, after his passing, was ever a thought in you guys' minds that you might just, you know, stop altogether? Well, I mean, you know, the, the realization is, you know, like, you know, if you can't find the right singer, what are you going to do? Right. You know, but fortunately, you know, we found Mark Gilbert. You know, weeks later, um, we were introduced to him, and when I heard that he was jamming with Joe Perry from Aerosmith, yeah. when when Joe was doing his solo thing, you know, I thought, wow, wow, Joe Perry likes him. That must be cool. And found out that his brother was Dave Gilbert. We were big fans of Dave and the Rockets. Yeah, that whole thing. Johnny B was one of my drum heroes. So, you know, just the whole Rockets thing was huge. And when we found out that Mark was a brother and all that, we met with Mark and then heard some of his songs that he wrote and loved them. And he was really into the blues and R&B and Otis Redding. And, you know, it just was really a great fit for everything we were doing, you know. And that's when my brother Mark joined the band shortly after Mark Gilbert joined. You know, we really, with Mark, we really needed a piano to be part of the music and part of the sound that we had. And uh, it worked out fabulous. So. Yeah, definitely. He, he, um, both of them were, you know, great additions to the band. And that, that's when you cut the uh, the uh, Don't Be Looking Back LP, right? Yeah, exactly. There are times Don't 
that's when it all, all everything came together with the Don't Be Looking Back record. Right. And, like, back then, when MTV was watchable and actually showed videos and stuff like that, one of your videos actually made it, Angel in the, in the Day. Yep. Yeah. Do you, you ever look back at, like, watching the videos and saying, oh, boy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What were we thinking? Right. <laughs> you know? But uh, most of the songs I, you know, really am proud of, Road of the Gypsy, Don't Be Looking Back, Far Away Eyes, Northern Shores, Photograph, you know, Kids Got a Will to Live, Give Me Your Heart, you know, some really, really great songs, you know, still... Today, they still sound great.
Yeah, they absolutely do. Um, were you, like, who was, like, the primary songwriter? Well, I mean, Mike Haggerty was, you know, a great songwriter in the band with David Larson and then with Mark Gilbert and Michael Romeo contributed a lot to the songwriting. My brother Mark, and Jimmy, you know, we all, I, I wrote a lot of lyrics and, you know, it was really a band collaboration, but, you know, usually guys like Flash or Michael Romeo, they'd have a riff or, you know, an idea and then we would fill it in with lyrics and, you know, Mark Gilbert could play guitar and play piano and, you know, he could do like the guitar groove, like what we were going to do and the melody and the lyric. And, you know, Mark was really strong at writing too. So there was just a lot of good collaboration within the group. Right. Everybody. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, the kids got a will to live. Was that like based on anybody? I mean, it's just, you know, it's just about, you know, survival, you know, and um, it was it was just a you know song about where we were coming from, you know. Yeah. And back then you guys opened for 
pretty big, you know, heavy hitters. Uh, you know, Cheap Trick, already especially mentioned Aerosmith, uh, you know, Bob Seger. Uh, did yeah. you, I'm sure you guys took, you know, stuff from them as you toured with them, right? Yeah, it was always great watching those bands on stage, you know, and learning how they work the crowds. And, you know, they were all great live bands, you know, super, just amazing, you know. Silver Bullet Band and you know Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, Thirty Eight Special. You know, they were all great bands, man. You know, so yeah, you always learn by watching. You know, I right. always took advantage of the uh, the opportunity of standing on the side of the stage watching the show at the soundboard there, the monitor board, checking it out. You know, yeah, watching the drummers. And, you know the interaction with the bands internally, you know, and all that stuff. It's cool. Yeah, and then you mentioned you know, the Rockets before. Uh, another, you know, great Detroit band, the Romantics. You know, back in that era, uh, what was like? Yeah. What was in the water in Detroit during that time? <laughs> oh, I don't know. It was just you know, Detroit is the music capital of the world. Yeah. I mean, simple as that. You know, it really is, and you know the music that's come from here in all genres is unlike any other city in the world. And, um, you know, we were a small part of that, but the, the history here in music and, you know, a lot of that stems from the automotive world that right. brought people from down south and people from around the world to Detroit for, for work, you know, in the early part of the century. And, you know, uh, I think it just, the blues and the jazz and the R&B and the soul music just really took heat here and uh, people loved it and you know it was really the the, uh, the, the the music that brought people together and it was a unifying thing I think and a lot of the lyrics were very positive and you know more uplifting than they are in today's world Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know it's quite different out there now where the the big the big label people and all that they want the negative and all the chaos right you know I think it's I think it's a, a bad thing and um, you know back when we were doing this and all the bands it was very uplifting and positive you know and our band going through everything that we went through um, and you know with the record label and the embezzlement thing and then you know, when we did the Road of the Gypsy and signed with MCA after all that, you know, we did some of the songs from American Heart with Road of the Gypsy and Summer Nights, you know, it was like exploding, again, touring, and then MCA got caught in the Radio Payola scandal. Right. And all the promotion dollars that we had for Road of the Gypsy were caught up in a, a whole payola thing that happened with MCA so that record came to a halt and that's when Mark Gilbert kind of went you know really on the other side and uh, you know it just got uh, very tough moving forward and he had you know two little kids as well and so yeah there was there was a lot going on right and you mentioned you know the the record companies uh, you know first the embezzlement with Russia, you know, the records, because um, American Heart was probably poised to, you know, do big things, you know, Far Away Eyes was out, and unfortunately, yeah. you couldn't do anything with that. 
Yeah, because it was an asset to the, the company. Right. And because they were in an embezzlement, they couldn't use the asset. So we had to wait till all the shit went over, you know, over about eight months. And uh, and finally, when they got through all the crap, when MCA signed us, you know, they had already worked the situation out where they could use the songs and uh, remix them and put them on a new record. Right. And then how I discovered you, like I think, you know, most people who weren't in Detroit was from the Iron Eagle movie, you know, featuring Road of the Gypsy, um, which, you know, fabulous song I mentioned, you know, earlier when we started. Um, did you, like, what was kind of like the story of that song? I mean, not, not like the lyrics, but just well, like the whole process of that song well, being made into, yeah, you know, the getting story, a movie. Yeah, yeah, when, you know, it wasn't for the movie when we wrote it.
on the road and we were in Chicago and uh, I had, you know, my headband and I was looking pretty rocking street at the mm-hmm. time and, uh, you know, it was like after driving for a couple of days or whatever and, you know, I was in a restaurant and in the hallway and this old Italian guy looked at me and said, uh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a, I'm a drummer in a rock and roll band. He said, oh, you a gypsy? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I guess so. And he says, well, where do you play? I said, well, we just play on the road. And he said, oh, you're the road of the gypsy. And I just looked at him and I was like, wow, I like that. Right. <laughs> I said, hey, thanks, man. Appreciate you, man. And I walked away. I went up to the bar. asked the bartender for a piece of paper and a pencil. I wrote road of the gypsy down, put it in my pocket. And I told my brother later, I said, listen, I got this idea for a song, man. It's called Road of the Gypsy. Why don't we make it like our theme song for the band? You know, mm-hmm. out of my own since I was a young, young boy. My brother started coming up with lyrics and and the music and and uh, then I started contributing more lyrics and we worked together on the lyrics and he put the music together and it just all came together, man. I mean, it was like really the story of our band, you know, out of my own self, I was a young, young boy born to live and die in the streets I cried when I was alone. It's been 20 long years, the fire's still burning, the wax on the candle melts like tears, you know it don't come easy on the road of the gypsy, you know? Yeah. This dream's, this dream's gonna carry me home, down, down the road of the gypsy. I mean, it was really the song of our band, you know? If they were gonna do a movie on it, it would be called Road of the Gypsy, you know? Right, and yeah, it was fabulous. So how, how did the record company, or I guess, you know, the music supervisor for the movie decide to place a song in it? Well, when Jimmy Risk you know, took our new songs that we were doing and uh, he went to see the people at Capitol and played them the song. They heard Road of the Gypsy and, mm-hmm. you know, immediately they said, oh, we're doing a new movie with, you know, uh, Jason Gedrick and, you know, uh, Lou Gossett Jr. And this song would be great in the movie. Let, let, let us check out. So they called a couple of weeks later and said, hey, man, the producers love it. They want to use it in the movie. And, you know, we want to talk to you guys about a deal and, so uh, Jimmy called, Jimmy Risk called, uh, you know, the people at MCA and said, listen, you know, we're, we're you know, Capital is really interested in Adrenaline. They're going to do the movie Iron Eagle and they want the song in the movie that we got. Well, let's hear the song. So he sent it to them and then they loved the song. They said, this is a great song. And so Irving Azoff and Richard Palmese said, no, man, you can't sign with Capital, you know. Rock Sire was part of the MCA family. We can work out the deal and get in the other songs. We can put this song with that. You can still do it in the movie, and let's figure all this out. And so that's how it all came together. Right, and then those songs from American Heart ended up in the Road of the Gypsy album as well, right? Yep. Yep, seven of the songs, I think, right. on that record. There's eight, eight of the songs, and then uh, Summer Nights and the gypsy were the new songs and where were you guys when you saw the movie in the theaters uh we was here in detroit they did a big you know uh opening night for it and we went with the radio station and went and seen the movie and 
it's a big thrill to watch the movie and hear your music in, you know, in a, in a theater like that. It was uh, very thrilling. Right, very, and it, very cool. Yeah, and the soundtrack, I mean, had like you know, Queen on it. I think Katrina and the Wave. I mean, they had like big, you know, big names. Twisted on. Sister. Yeah, Twisted Sister as well. I mean, they had you know big names on that soundtrack, and you know, your song was. Oh like, yeah. The you know theme oh, of the yeah. movie, yeah. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. Huge. So then, um, did you guys like go out and like play any like you know? national shows like late night shows or anything like that to promote the song um not the late night shows no we just did a lot of touring you know right. again with you know 38 special and you know a lot of the groups that knew about us and you know that we were good with so we just kept, kept touring like that you know until MCA got caught in their payola yeah. scandal with radio right so now that was kind of like, I guess you can say strike two. I mean, you had like in the embezzlement and the payola. I mean, besides that, I mean, do you think the band would well, have the, right? Well, you know, the lead, lead David singer? Larson dying. Yeah. David, you know, Mark. then the embezzlement and then the payola. Right, so three you strikes, know. yeah. Do you, do you think that, um, that that was pretty much the reason why? That, I mean, if... The embezzlement and then the, you know, the record company, you know, the payola, do you think you guys would have kind of soldiered on if you were able to find another lead oh, singer? Yeah. yeah. Well, after the payola thing, um, you know, that that was like, I, I had met Mark Farner and, and um, Farner wasn't happy with his band. And right. We were, we were going through a lot and Gilbert was really on his last straw and it was just really horrible what he was going through. Um, he's like shooting up the Percodan and you know, oh. it was it was scary. You know, thought we were gonna head down a really bad road and we just needed a break from it all, so that's why the the four of us, uh well, the five of us, Michael, Jimmy, uh, myself, Bruce, went out with Mark Farmer because he needed a band and we just thought we would love to tour with Mark. And uh so we did and it was great. We loved it. Right. And is that how uh, DC Drive formed? Well, you know, a year after that is when we met Joey Bowen. And, you know, he was great. And he was a young kid. And he was a great singer. And he loved Otis Redding and Sam Cooke. And we jammed. And he was great. We had heard that Mark Farner was his dad. But we asked Mark and he said no. It was <laughs> his cousin's kid. Right. You know, that went, that whole thing like that. But uh, we told him that, you know, we were thinking of starting a band. And then Punch Andrews' manager was managing Doug Cahan. And uh, Doug had a lot of good songs. And he Punch heard about Joey and said, hey, listen, man, you guys should, if you're going to do a band with him, you know, if you need a bass player, you should get with Cahan. He's got some great songs. So Doug had You Need Love and all that.
It really worked out cool, and that's when we started. DC Drive started as Adrenaline, the new Adrenaline, and we played a few shows, and uh, then we changed the name to DC Drive because it was really a different band. Right. So we changed it to DC Drive and just started on the road again. Yeah, I mean, DC. I like the sound of DC Drive. It definitely mixed in a nice, you know, rock and R and B. Definitely, you know, had that that tone about it. Yeah. 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 How did yeah. you? Yeah. How did you guys come up with the name Adrenaline? Um, it was uh, a name that we had. Flash and I always said in high school that would be a great name for a band. Right. That was cool. Yeah. But you guys um, got. You signed a three-album deal, right? But only released one with Capitol Records. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because then then Joey, same thing. Thing exploded. We did this with Vinnie Ponce again, and the song was catching on. The radio was getting ready to blow it up in the states after doing it up in Canada, and then Joey was doing a lot of you know side room stuff and you know the whole thing, and he was doing his own thing and. Mm-hmm. You know, the bigger it got, the more confused I think he was. And then he's at the very tip of the whole thing. He just said he was sick of singing soul music and wanted to sing music about hate, you know. And, uh, you know, it was like, oh, my God. So after going through all that and going down that road, we really uh, just wanted to, you know, get on with our lives. And that's when we got in. Jimmy and Mark and I got into the production business and did that for the next 18 years. Wow. Yeah. And what do you working with Aretha? And right. Yeah, I was going to ask you. Day. Yeah, about working with with Aretha. Um, how did that all come about? Well, Michael Powell was close with her, right. and um, we were huge fans. And she uh, wanted to record, and Mark was great with her in the studio. So it really just led to. Uh, us doing a couple of songs with her and she loved it and then she wanted to record at her house uh, doing vocals and stuff so we would do that we would bring the equipment there and she loved that 
that just led to a whole great re- working relationship with her on, you know, on working on that record at the time and then doing the two songs that Mark won Grammys for, uh, Never Gonna Break My Faith, right. uh, Adams, the right. Bobby soundtrack. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it was great, man. She was awesome and she just was such a great music person. It was incredible, you know, and, uh, uh, working with Dave Mason and Mark Farner in the studio, making records with them, and right. Mary J. Mary J. Blige, and you know, it was a really great experience. P. Diddy, right. um, Keith Washington, so many people we got to work with over the years in production. Yeah, and then I guess I was reading that uh, one of your fans of DC Drive was a young kid, Rock, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep, he liked he liked DC Drive a lot. The whole rap rock thing that Joey did, right, was cool. Yeah, did did you like? Was he performing back then? When when he when he comes to you guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he wasn't doing Kid Rock at the right. time. He was Bob Ritchie, Bob Ritchie, and then he turned into Kid Rock. Right. Yeah. Did you like you know see something in him that he thought that he would be this massive star? No. <laughs> Right. <laughs> no, I really, I really didn't see it then. It didn't happen until, really, he started to get into putting a real rock band together when he got Marlon Young to help him put a band together, and that's when he got Jimmy Bones and you know, um, you know, Kenny Olsen and right. you know, it was it was when he really got a real rock band behind him to do what he was doing that it all happened. You know, got away from the whole Vanilla Ice thing that yeah. he was doing. Right. Now, what are you up to these days? Uh, working with an incredible new media marketing company called 360 Access. Uh, we're doing social media and mobile marketing, and uh, my partner, our partner, uh, Bijan Marathi and his team, I've been with them for over 15 years, and uh, we're getting ready to bring a whole new marketing world uh, using social media and uh, mobile phones really drive traffic and we're uh, going to create a music division here too called Harmony Access that's going to be uh, a new media marketing record label so we're going to be doing that and uh, working with companies giving them exposure to people in social media and mobile marketing um, you know engaging with people you know working the personas and giving people relevant marketing not advertising you know, engaged things and really using social media and mobile marketing to music discovery, you know? So that's a really exciting thing to happen with that coming full circle. You know, it's great to make great music, but if nobody knows about it, nobody hears about it, then it's going nowhere. So the marketing is critical to great music and great art. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, especially now. I mean, everyone, you know, can put a song up on YouTube or whatever, but if there's no yep. way to promote it, then it just goes by the by the wayside. Um, I saw on face, Facebook the Adrenaline page that they were working on an Adrenaline documentary. Are they still working yeah. on it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, I don't know where it's at right now, but uh, you know, um, it's coming along. Right. It's gonna take some time to put it together, but you know, and I've got a lot of stuff going on now, so. You know, just working. Right, right. 
And then I, I saw, you know, back I think what the mid '80s, you you guys did the national anthem at Tiger Stadium. Uh, I yeah yeah I've I've been to Detroit a few times, and Tiger Stadium was always one of my favorite ball ballparks. You can especially you know right field bleacher seats, like basically you're right on top of the stadium. Um, how how much fun was performing there? Well, it was great. I was a huge. We were huge Tiger fans. Right. Friends with Ernie Harwell. Wow. You know, um, you know, just you know, knew a lot of the uh, ball players, right. and they were big fans of the band. And you know, Dave Bergman and Alan Trammell, and Tom Brookins, mm. Jack Morris, they, uh, Kirk Gibson. They they loved Adrenaline and Faraway Eyes and Road of the Gypsy. Right. And so being able to sing the national anthem at Tiger Stadium in that classic ballpark with some of our friends who were on the team and Sparky Anderson and you know it was it was really great classic classic moments right and sure. that, yeah and that was what like a year or two after they won the World Series so the team was hot back then oh yeah well yeah it was that right after I mean 84 that's yeah. when uh, American Heart came out right. that's what really got them into it you know yeah it was uh you know, when we had faraway eyes, that's when the Tiger guy said they were listening to it in the locker room. You were raised on a tropical wave, then you came into my life.
Well, that's really cool. Yeah, they, they had that incredible start that one year. I think it was like 33 or 35 and 3 or 35 and 5 or something like that when they won the World Series. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 35 and 5, yeah. Yeah. And yep. that, yeah. So I, I imagine you're still a big baseball fan, right? Yeah, oh yeah. It's just disappointing, you know, the Tigers are not happening, but... Right, you know. yeah, yeah. I, I'm a Yankee fan, so I'm... I, I'm doing quite well. <laughs> yeah, you know what, and I like the Yankees a lot, too, so... Yeah. yeah I just like the sport. But, uh, but Brian, yeah. yeah, but Brian, this this was fantastic. Thank you for a few minutes today, and best of luck. Oh, uh, no, thank you so much. I appreciate it very much. Uh, it's just a wonderful thing that... You know, all these years have gone by and our music is still, you know, placed in people's hearts. And uh, that was the whole mission we had when we did this. And uh, I really appreciate you sitting me down here to go through it and talk about it and share this uh, blessed time in my life with my great friends. And, you know, our road crew, the Midnight Express, with all our friends, and our manager, Jimmy Risk, and Vinnie Poncia, and... Jerry Allaire and Howard Steele and, you know, Maurice King, Charlie Atkins, a lot of the Motown people, you know, just, it's great that we got to do this, experience this, and uh, uh, we were very blessed. We thank, thank God for it all. And a special thanks to Brian for joining us today. Check out Adrenaline's page on Facebook. Brian's very active on Facebook as well. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the first Noel 19 Be sure to like the page of Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. The show is on SoundCloud, it's on Podbean, and it's also on Spotify. Just search We're Living My Youth, all one word. Go to tpublic.com for all your We're Living My Youth merchandise. A new episode of the show comes out every Wednesday, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>